chapters 43, 44, and 45 of The Mirror of the Sea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mirror of the Sea by Joseph Conrad The Tremolino Continued Chapter 43 Anyway, he was perfect, as Donna Rita had declared. The only thing unsatisfactory and even inexplicable about our Dominic was his nephew, Cesar. It was startling to see a desolate expression of shame veil the remorseless audacity in the eyes of that man superior to all scruples and terrors. I would never have dared to bring him on board your balancelle, he once apologized to me, but what am I to do? His mother is dead, and my brother has gone into the bush. In this way I learned that our Dominic had a brother. As to going into the bush, this only means that a man has done his duty successfully in the pursuit of a hereditary vendetta. The feud which had existed for ages between the families of Cervoni and Brunaschi was so old that it seemed to have smoldered out at last. One evening Pietro Brunaschi, after a laborious day amongst his olive trees, sat on a chair against the wall of his house with a bowl of broth on his knees and a piece of bread in his hand. Dominic's brother, going home with a gun on his shoulder, found a sudden offense in this picture of content and rest, so obviously calculated to awaken the feelings of hatred and revenge. He and Pietro had never had any personal quarrel, but as Dominic explained, all our dead cried out to him. He shouted from behind a wall of stones, Oh, Pietro, behold what is coming. And as the other looked up innocently, he took aim at the forehead and squared the old vendetta account so neatly that, according to Dominic, the dead man continued to sit with the bowl of broth on his knees and the piece of bread in his hand. This is why, because in Corsica your dead will not leave you alone, Dominic's brother had to go into the Maquis, into the bush on the wild mountainside, to dodge the gendarme for the insignificant remainder of his life, and Dominic had charge of his nephew with a mission to make a man of him. No more unpromising undertaking could be imagined. The very material for the task seemed wanting. The Cervonis, if not handsome men, were good sturdy flesh and blood. But this extraordinarily lean and livid youth seemed to have no more blood in him than a snail. Some cursed witch must have stolen my brother's child from the cradle and put that spawn of a starved devil in its place, Dominic would say to me. Look at him! Just look at him! To look at Cesar was not pleasant. 
his parchment skin showing dead white on his cranium through the thin wisps of dirty brown hair seemed to be glued directly and tightly upon his big bones without being in any way deformed he was the nearest approach which i have ever seen or could imagine to what is commonly understood by the word monster that the source of the effect produced was really moral i have no doubt an utterly hopelessly depraved nature was expressed in physical terms that taken each separately had nothing positively startling you imagined him clamily cold to the touch like a snake the slightest reproof the most mild and justifiable remonstrance would be met by a resentful glare and an evil shrinking of his thin dry upper lip a snarl of hate to which he generally added the agreeable sound of grinding teeth it was for this venomous performance rather than for his lies impudence and laziness that his uncle used to knock him down it must not be imagined that it was anything in the nature of a brutal assault dominic's brawny arm would be seen describing deliberately an ample horizontal gesture a dignified sweep and cesar would go over suddenly like a ninepin which was funny to see but once down he would writhe on the deck gnashing his teeth in impotent rage which was pretty horrible to behold and it also happened more than once that he would disappear completely which was startling to observe this is the exact truth before some of these majestic cuffs cesar would go down and vanish he would vanish heels overhead into open hatchways into scuttles behind upended casks according to the place where he happened to come into contact with his uncle's mighty arm once it was in the old harbor just before the tremolino's last voyage he vanished thus overboard to my infinite consternation dominic and i had been talking business together aft and cesar had sneaked up behind us to listen for amongst his other perfections he was a consummate eavesdropper and spy at the sound of the heavy plop alongside horror held me rooted to the spot but dominic stepped quietly to the rail and leaned over waiting for his nephew's miserable head to bob up for the first time oh hey cesar he yelled contemptuously to the spluttering wretch catch hold of that mooring hawser charon he approached me to resume the interrupted conversation what about cesar i asked anxiously canalia let him hang there was his answer and he went on talking over the business in hand calmly while i tried vainly to dismiss from my mind the picture of cesar steeped to the chin in the water of the old harbor a decoction of centuries of marine refuse 
I tried to dismiss it, because the mere notion of that liquid made me feel very sick. Presently Dominic, hailing an idle boatman, directed him to go and fish his nephew out. And by and by, Cesar appeared walking on board from the quay, shivering, streaming with filthy water, with bits of rotten straws in his hair, and a piece of dirty orange peel stranded on his shoulder. His teeth chattered, his yellow eyes squinted balefully at us as he passed forward. I thought it my duty to remonstrate. Why are you always knocking him about, Dominic? I asked. Indeed, I felt convinced it was no earthly good, a sheer waste of muscular force. I must try to make a man of him, Dominic answered hopelessly. I restrained the obvious retort that in this way he ran the risk of making, in the words of the immortal Mr. Mantellini, a demnition damp, unpleasant corpse of him. He wants to be a locksmith, burst out Servioni. To learn how to pick locks, I suppose, he added with sardonic bitterness. Why not let him be a locksmith, I ventured. Who would teach him, he cried. Where could I leave him, he asked, with a drop in his voice, and I had my first glimpse of genuine despair. He steals, you know, alas. Pata madone. I believe he would put poison in your food and mine. The viper. He raised his face and both his clenched fists slowly to heaven. However, Cesar never dropped poison into our cups. One cannot be sure, but I fancied he went to work in another way. This voyage, of which the details need not be given, we had to range far afield for sufficient reasons. Coming up from the south to end it with the important and really dangerous part of the scheme in hand, we found it necessary to look into Barcelona for certain definite information. This appears like running one's head into the very jaws of the lion, but in reality it was not so. We had one or two high, influential friends there, and many others humble but valuable because bought for good hard cash. We were in no danger of being molested. Indeed, the important information reached us promptly by the hands of a custom-house officer who came on board full of showy zeal to poke an iron rod into the layer of oranges which made the visible part of our cargo in the hatchway. I forgot to mention before that the Tremolino was officially known as a fruit and corkwood trader. The zealous officer managed to slip a useful piece of paper into Dominic's hand as he went ashore, and a few hours afterwards, being off duty, he returned on board again a thirst for drinks and gratitude. He got both as a matter of course. While he sat sipping his liqueur in the tiny cabin, Dominic plied him with questions as to the whereabouts of the Garda Costas. The preventive service afloat was really the one for us to reckon with, and it was material for our success and safety to know the exact position of the patrol craft in the neighborhood. 
The news could not have been more favorable. The officer mentioned a small place on the coast some twelve miles off, where, unsuspicious and unready, she was lying at anchor, with her sails unbent, painting yards and scraping spars. Then he left us after the usual compliments, smiling reassuringly over his shoulder. I had kept below pretty close all day from excess of prudence. The stake played on that trip was big. We are ready to go at once, but for Cesar, who has been missing ever since breakfast, announced Dominic to me in his slow, grim way. Where the fellow had gone, and why, we could not imagine. The usual surmises in the case of a missing seaman did not apply to Cesar's absence. He was too odious for love, friendship, gambling, or even casual intercourse. But once or twice he had wandered away like this before. Dominic went ashore to look for him, but returned at the end of two hours alone and very angry, as I could see by the token of the invisible smile under his moustache being intensified. We wondered what had become of the wretch, and made a hurried investigation among our portable property. He had stolen nothing. He will be back before long, I said confidently. Ten minutes afterwards, one of the men on deck called out loudly, I can see him coming. Cesar had only his shirt and trousers on. He had sold his coat, apparently for pocket money. You knave, was all Dominic said with a terrible softness of voice. He restrained his collar for a time. Where have you been, vagabond? he asked menacingly. Nothing would induce Cesar to answer that question. It was as if he had even disdained to lie. He faced us, drawing back his lips and gnashing his teeth, and did not shrink an inch before the sweep of Dominic's arm. He went down as if shot, of course. But this time I noticed that, when picking himself up, he remained longer than usual on all fours, baring his big teeth over his shoulder and glaring upwards at his uncle with a new sort of hate in his round yellow eyes. That permanent sentiment seemed pointed at that moment by a special malice and curiosity. I became quite interested. If he ever manages to put poison in the dishes, I thought to myself, this is how he will look at us as we sit at our meal. But I did not, of course, believe for a moment that he would ever put poison in our food. He ate the same things himself. Moreover, he had no poison. And I could not imagine a human being so blinded by cupidity as to sell poison to such an atrocious creature. Chapter 44 We slipped out to sea quietly at dusk, and all through the night everything went well. 
The breeze was gusty, a southerly blow was making up. It was fair wind for our course. Now and then Dominic slowly and rhythmically struck his hands together a few times, as if applauding the performance of the tremolino. La Balancelle hummed and quivered as she flew along, dancing lightly under our feet. At daybreak I pointed out to Dominic, amongst the several sail in view running before the gathering storm, one particular vessel. The press of canvas she carried made her loom up high, on end, like a gray column standing motionless, direct in our wake. Look at this fellow, Dominic, I said. He seems to be in a hurry. The padrone made no remark, but wrapping his black cloak close about him, stood up to look. His weather-tanned face, framed in the hood, had an aspect of authority and challenging force, with the deep-set eyes gazing far away fixedly, without a wink, like the intent, merciless, steady eyes of a seabird. Shiva piano vasano, he remarked at last, with a derisive glance over the side, in ironic allusion to our own tremendous speed. The tremolino was doing her best, and seemed to hardly touch the great burst of foam over which she darted. I crouched down again to get some shelter from the low bulwark. After more than half an hour of swaying immobility, expressing a concentrated breathless watchfulness, Dominic sank on the deck by my side. Within the monkish cowl his eyes gleamed with a fierce expression which surprised me. All he said was, He has come out here to watch the new paint off his yards, I suppose. What? I shouted, getting up on my knees. Is she the Garda Costa? The perpetual suggestion of a smile under Dominic's piratical moustaches seemed to become more accentuated quite real, grim, actually almost visible through the wet and uncurled hair. Judging by that symptom, he must have been in a towering rage. But I could also see that he was puzzled, and that discovery affected me disagreeably. Dominic puzzled? For a long time, leaning against the bulwark, I gazed over the stern at the gray column that seemed to stand swaying slightly in our wake always at the same distance. Meanwhile Dominic, black and cowled, sat cross-legged on the deck, with his back to the wind, recalling vaguely an Arab chief in his burnous sitting on the sand. Above his motionless figure the little cord and tassel on the stiff point of the hood swung about inanely in the gale. At last I gave up facing the wind and rain and crouched down by his side. I was satisfied that the sail was a patrol craft. Her presence was not a thing to talk about, but soon, between two clouds charged with hail showers, a burst of sunshine fell upon her sails, and our men discovered her character for themselves. From that moment I noticed that they seemed to take no heed of each other or of anything else. They could spare no eyes and no thought but for the slight column shape astern of us. Its swaying had become perceptible. 
For a moment she remained dazzlingly white, then faded away slowly to nothing in a squall, only to reappear again, nearly black, resembling a post stuck upright against the slaty background of solid cloud. Since first noticed, she had not gained on us a foot. She will never catch the tremolino, I said exultingly. Dominic did not look at me. He remarked absently, but justly, that the heavy weather was in our pursuer's favor. She was three times our size. What we had to do was to keep our distance till dark, which we could manage easily, and then haul off to seaward and consider the situation. But his thoughts seemed to stumble in the darkness of some not-solved enigma, and soon he fell silent. We ran steadily, wing and wing. Cape San Sebastian, nearly ahead, seemed to recede from us in the squalls of rain, and come out again to meet our rush, every time more distinct between the showers. For my part, I was by no means certain that this Gabalu, as our men alluded to her opprobriously, was after us at all. There were nautical difficulties in such a view which made me express the sanguine opinion that she was in all innocence simply changing her station. At this Dominic condescended to turn his head. I tell you, she is in chase, he affirmed moodily, after one short glance astern. I never doubted his opinion, but with all the ardor of a neophyte and the pride of an apt learner, I was at that time a great nautical casuist. What I can't understand, I insisted subtly, is how on earth, with this wind, she has managed to be just where she was when we first made her out. It is clear that she could not, and did not, gain twelve miles on us during the night. And there are other impossibilities. Dominic had been sitting motionless, like an inanimate black cone posed on the stern deck, near the rudder head, with a small tassel fluttering on its sharp point, and for a time he preserved the immobility of his meditation. Then, bending over with a short laugh, he gave my ear the bitter fruit of it. He understood everything now perfectly. She was where we had seen her first, not because she had caught us up, but because we had passed her during the night while she was already waiting for us, hove to, most likely, on our very track. "'Do you understand already?' Dominic muttered in a fierce undertone. "'Already? You know we left a good eight hours before we were expected to leave. Otherwise she would have been in time to lie and wait for us on the other side of the Cape, and—' He snapped his teeth like a wolf close to my face. "'And she would have had us like that!' I saw it all plainly enough now. They had eyes in their heads and all their wits about them in that craft. We had passed them in the dark as they jogged on easily towards their ambush with the idea that we were yet far behind. At daylight, however, sighting a balancelle ahead under a press of canvas, they had made sail in chase. 
But if that was so, then... Dominic seized my arm. Yes, yes, she came out on an information. Do you see it? On information. We have been sold, betrayed. Why, how, what for? We always paid them all so well on shore. No, but it is my head that is going to burst. He seemed to choke, tugged at the throat button of the cloak, jumped up open-mouthed as if to hurl curses and denunciation, but instantly mastered himself, and wrapping up the cloak closer about him, sat down on the deck again as quiet as ever. Yes, it must be the work of some scoundrel ashore, I observed. He pulled the edge of the hood well forward over his brow before he muttered, a scoundrel. Yes, it's evident. Well, I said, they can't get us, that's clear. No, he assented quietly, they cannot. We shaved the cape very close to avoid an adverse current. On the other side, by the effect of the land, the wind failed us so completely for a moment that the Tremolino's two great lofty sails hung idle to the mass in the thundering uproar of the seas breaking upon the shore we had left behind. And when the returning gust filled them again, we saw with amazement half of the new mainsail, which we thought fit to drive the boat under before giving way, absolutely fly out of the boat ropes. We lowered the yard at once, and saved it all, but it was no longer a sail. It was only a heap of soaked strips of canvas, cumbering the deck and wading the craft. Dominic gave the order to throw the whole lot overboard. I would have had the yard thrown overboard, too, he said, leading me aft again, if it had not been for the trouble. Let no sign escape you, he continued, lowering his voice, but I am going to tell you something terrible. Listen. I have observed that the roping stitches on that sail have been cut. You hear? Cut with a knife in many places, and yet it stood all that time. Not enough cut. That flap did it at last. What matters it? But look, there's treachery seated on this very deck, by the horns of the devil, seated here at our very backs. Do not turn, signorini. We were facing aft then. What's to be done? I asked, appalled. Nothing. Silence. Be a man, signorini. What else? I said. To show I could be a man, I resolved to utter no sound as long as Dominic himself had the force to keep his lips closed. Nothing but silence becomes certain situations. Moreover, the experience of treachery seemed to spread a hopeless drowsiness over my thoughts and senses. For an hour or more we watched our pursuers surging out nearer and nearer from amongst the squalls that sometimes hid her altogether. But even when not seen, we felt her there like a knife at our throats. She gained on us frightfully, 
and the tremolino in a fierce breeze and in much smoother water swung on easily under her one sail with something appallingly careless in the joyous freedom of her motion another half hour went by i could not stand it any longer they will get the poor barky i stammered out suddenly almost on the verge of tears dominic stirred no more than a carving a sense of catastrophic loneliness overcame my inexperienced soul the vision of my companions passed before me the whole royalist gang was in monte carlo now i reckoned and they appeared to me clear-cut and very small with affected voices and stiff gestures like a procession of rigid marionettes upon a toy stage i gave a start what was this a mysterious remorseless whisper came from within the motionless black hood at my side il faut la tuer i heard it very well what did you say dominic i asked moving nothing but my lips and the whisper within the hood repeated mysteriously she must be killed my heart began to beat violently that's it i faltered out but how you love her well i do then you must find the heart for that work too you must steer her yourself and i shall see to it that she dies quickly without leaving as much as a chip behind can you i murmured fascinated by the black hood turned immovably over the stern as if in unlawful communion with that old sea of magicians slave dealers exiles and warriors the sea of legends and terrors where the mariners of remote antiquity used to hear the restless shade of an old wanderer weep aloud in the dark i know a rock whispered the initiated voice within the hood secretly but caution it must be done before our men perceive what we are about whom can we trust now a knife drawn across the four halyards would bring the foresail down and put an end to our liberty in twenty minutes and the best of our men may be afraid of drowning there is our little boat but in an affair like this no one can be sure of being saved the voice ceased we had started from barcelona with our dinghy in tow afterwards it was too risky to try to get her in again so we let her take her chance of the seas at the end of a comfortable scope of rope many times she had seemed to us completely overwhelmed but soon we would see her bob up again on a wave apparently as buoyant and whole as ever i understand i said softly very well dominique when not yet we must get a little more in first answered the voice from the hood in a ghostly murmur chapter forty five it was settled i now had the courage to turn about 
Our men crouched about the decks here and there, with anxious, crestfallen faces, all turned one way to watch the chaser. For the first time that morning I perceived Cesar stretched out full length on the deck, near the foremast, and wondered where he had been skulking till then. But he might in truth have been at my elbow all the time, for all I knew. We had been too absorbed in watching our fate to pay attention to each other. Nobody had eaten anything that morning, but the men had been coming constantly to drink at the water-butt. I ran down to the cabin. I had there, put away in a locker, ten thousand francs in gold, of whose presence on board, so far as I was aware, not a soul, except Dominic, had the slightest inkling. When I emerged on deck again, Dominic had turned about and was peering from under his cowl at the coast. Cape Creux closed the view ahead. To the left a wide bay, its waters torn and swept by fierce squalls, seemed full of smoke. Astern the sky had a menacing look. Directly he saw me, Dominic, in a placid tone, wanted to know what was the matter. I came close to him, and, looking as unconcerned as I could, told him in an undertone that I had found the locker broken open and the money belt gone. Last evening it was still there. "'What did you want to do with it?' he asked me, trembling violently. "'Put it round my waist, of course,' I answered, amazed to hear his teeth chattering. "'Cursed gold,' he muttered. "'The weight of the money might have cost you your life, perhaps.' He shuddered. "'There is no time to talk about that now.' "'I am ready.' "'Not yet.' I am waiting for that squall to come over, he muttered, and a few leaden minutes passed. The squall came over at last. Our pursuer, overtaken by a sort of murky whirlwind, disappeared from our sight. The tremolino quivered and bounded forward. The land ahead vanished too, and we seemed to be left alone in a world of water and wind. Prenez la bas, monsieur, Dominic broke the silence suddenly in an austere voice. Take hold of the tiller. He bent his hood to my ear. La balancelle is yours. Your own hands must deal the blow. I have yet another piece of work to do. He spoke up loudly to the man who steered. Let the signorino take the tiller and you with the others stand by to haul the boat alongside quickly at the word. The man obeyed, surprised but silent. The others stirred and pricked up their ears at this. I heard their murmurs. What now? Are we going to run in somewhere and take to our heels? The padrone knows what he is doing. Dominic went forward. He paused to look down at César, who, as I have said before, was lying full length face down by the foremast, then stepped over him and dived out of my sight under the foresail. I saw nothing ahead. 
it was impossible for me to see anything except the foresail open and still like a great shadowy wing but dominic had his bearings his voice came to me from forward in a just audible cry now signorino i bore on the tiller as instructed before again i heard him faintly and then i had only to hold her straight no ship ran so joyously to her death before she rose and fell as if floating in space and darted forward whizzing like an arrow dominic stooping under the foot of the foresail reappeared and stood steadying himself against the mast with a raised forefinger in an attitude of expectant attention a second before the shock his arm fell down by his side at that i set my teeth and then talk of splintered planks and smashed timbers this shipwreck lies upon my soul with the dread and horror of a homicide with the unforgettable remorse of having crushed a living faithful heart at a single blow at one moment the rush and the soaring swing of speed the next a crash and death stillness a moment of horrible immobility with the song of the wind changed to a strident wail and the heavy waters boiling up menacing and sluggish around the corpse i saw in a distracting minute the foreyard fly fore and aft with a brutal swing the men all in a heap cursing with fear and hauling frantically at the line of the boat with a strange welcoming of the familiar i saw also cesar amongst them and recognized dominic's old well-known effective gesture the horizontal sweep of his powerful arm i recollect distinctly saying to myself cesar must go down of course and then as i was scrambling on all fours the swinging tiller i had let go caught me a crack under the ear and knocked me over senseless i don't think i was actually unconscious for more than a few minutes but when i came to myself the dinghy was driving before the wind into a sheltered cove two men just keeping her straight with their oars dominic with his arm round my shoulders supported me in the stern sheets we landed in a familiar part of the country dominic took one of the boat's oars with him i suppose he was thinking of the stream we would have presently to cross on which there was a miserable specimen of a punt often robbed of its pole but first of all we had to ascend the ridge of land at the back of the cape he helped me up i was dizzy my head felt very large and heavy at the top of the ascent i clung to him and we stopped to rest to the right below us the wide smoky bay was empty dominic had kept his word there was not a chip to be seen around the black rock from which the tremolino with her plucky heart crushed at one blow had slipped off into deep water to her eternal rest the vastness of the open sea was smothered in driving mists 
and in the centre of the thinning squall, phantom-like, under a frightful press of canvas, the unconscious Garda Costa dashed on, still chasing to the northward. Our men were already descending the reverse slope to look for that punt which we knew from experience was not always to be found easily. I looked after them with dazed, misty eyes. One, two, three, four. Dominic, where's Cesar? I cried. As if repulsing the very sound of the name, the padron made that ample sweeping, knocking-down gesture. I stepped back a pace and stared at him fearfully. His open shirt uncovered his muscular neck and the thick hair on his chest. He planted the oar upright in the soft soil, and rolling up slowly his right sleeve, extended the bare arm before my face. This, he began, with an extreme deliberation, whose superhuman restraint vibrated with the suppressed violence of his feelings, is the arm which delivered the blow. I am afraid it is your own gold that did the rest. I forgot all about your money. He clasped his hands together in sudden distress. I forgot, I forgot, he repeated disconsolately. Cesar stole the belt, I stammered out bewildered. And who else? Canalia. He must have been spying on you for days, and he did the whole thing, absent all day in Barcelona. Tradatore sold his jacket to hire a horse. Ha ha, a good affair. I tell you it was he who set him at us. Dominic pointed at the sea, where the Garda Costa was a mere dark speck. His chin dropped on his breast. On information, he murmured in a gloomy voice, Ah, Cervoni, oh, my poor brother. And you drowned him, I said feebly. I struck once, and the wretch went down like a stone with the gold. Yes, but he had time to read in my eyes that nothing could save him while I was alive. And had I not the right, I, Dominic Savoni, Padron, who brought him aboard your felucca, my nephew, a traitor. He pulled the oar out of the ground and helped me carefully down the slope. All the time he never once looked me in the face. He punted us over, then shouldered the oar again, and waited till our men were at some distance before he offered me his arm. After we had gone a little way, the fishing hamlet we were making for came into view. Dominic stopped. Do you think you can make your way as far as the houses by yourself? He asked me quietly. Yes, I think so. But why? Where are you going, Dominic? Anywhere. What a question. Signorino, you are but little more than a boy to ask such a question of a man having this tale in his family. Ah, traditore! What made me ever own that spawn of a hungry devil for our own blood? Thief, cheat, 
Coward! Liar! Other men can deal with that. But I was his uncle, and so I wish he had poisoned me. Sharog! But this, that I, a confidential man and a Corsican, should have to ask your pardon for bringing on board your vessel of which I was padron, a servone, who has betrayed you, a traitor, that is too much, it is too much. Well, I beg your pardon, and you may spit in Dominic's face, because a traitor of our blood taints us all. A theft may be good between men, a lie may be set right, a death avenged, but what can one do to atone for a treachery like this? Nothing. He turned and walked away from me along the bank of the stream, flourishing a vengeful arm and repeating to himself slowly with savage emphasis, Ah, can I, can I, can I? He left me there trembling with weakness and mute with awe. Unable to make a sound, I gazed after the strangely desolate figure of that seaman carrying an oar on his shoulder up a barren, rock-strewn ravine under the dreary leaden sky of Tremolino's last day. Thus, walking deliberately with his back to the sea, Dominic vanished from my sight. With the quality of our desires, thoughts, and wonder proportioned to our infinite littleness, we measure even time itself by our own stature. Imprisoned in the house of personal illusions, thirty century in mankind's history seem less to look back upon than thirty years of our own life. And Dominic Cervoni takes his place in my memory by the side of the legendary wanderer on the sea of marvels and terrors, by the side of the fatal and impious adventurer to whom the evoked shade of the soothsayer predicted a journey inland with an oar on his shoulder, till he met men who had never set eyes on ships and oars. It seems to me I can see them side by side in the twilight of an arid land, the unfortunate possessors of the secret lore of the sea, bearing the emblem of their hard calling on their shoulders, surrounded by silent and curious men. Even as I, too, having turned my back upon the sea, and bearing those few pages in the twilight, with the hope of finding in an inland valley the silent welcome of some patient listener. End of chapter 45